You know, it's one thing to launch a war under the belief that your nation must be preserved or that the evil enemy must be crushed or whatever. It's another thing to have the world destroyed and not know quite why it happened. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, last week we were talking about the presidential debate and some of the words that were used in the presidential debate and a topic that triggered your part of the podcast mainly was... Um, the concept of Donald Trump having access to the nuclear codes, which has become a big issue. And uh, it should be a horrifying issue for anybody having access to the nuclear codes. Um, but uh, particularly this man who's running for president who has no experience in politics or in the military. Uh, we've had a president who leaped into the office who had no experience in politics. That was Eisenhower, but Remember, he had a long past, a long history of understanding how the military operations work. But this got us into the topic of the word nuclear and how it has been used in literature and what importance this word has. Yeah. Um, well, last time I was talking about Brian Aldous, and um, I'll return to Heliconia Winter later uh, when I want to talk about it as a novel. But when I was doing my research, um, I knew about his interest in the topic, and so I corresponded with him, and I said, um, we're going to meet at this conference in Florida. This was the Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts, which I've talked about before in the podcast. And uh, I'm going to bring along the manuscript of my proposed book, and I'd like you to see what you think of it, if you'd be willing. And he expressed great interest. Um, he also said, well, if you'd do me a favor, since you're in Washington, uh, would you go to the Library of Congress and look up a few things for me? And I had to explain to them, no, Washington State is nowhere near Washington, D.C. <laughs> so anyway, we met at the conference, and I gave him my manuscript, and he said, would you like to read the manuscript of my latest book? I was feeling very flattered, and I said, oh, thank you. Um is there anything that you'd like me to notice in particular? You're wondering if he needed feedback and, you know, criticism or anything. And he said, yes, admire the beauty of the prose. <laughs> <laughs> the book turned out to be one of my favorite novels, Heliconia Winter. And um, I'll talk about that a little bit later when it comes more in chronological order. So... Outside of science fiction, there's little written in fiction about nuclear war before 1950. Although in 1950, one of the most important ones appears um, by a woman who is a well-known science fiction author and editor of anthologies, Judith Merrill. Um, her book was Shadow on the Hearth. And the title suggests the theme that the most effective depictions of nuclear war for me have been the ones that are up close and personal that tell individual stories of people's suffering that's something that is largely neglected in nuclear war novels 
what it feels like to watch your children wasting away of radiation disease. Um, how to explain to your daughter that she's never going to be able to grow up and get married and have children. Um, it's an exceptional book and uh, had a certain audience, but it did not break through into a larger community. It didn't have the earmarks of the usual science fiction in that it was set in the present in a typical home and just saying, well, if the bombs that the Russians have and the ones we have get exploded, this is what it would be like. That is what we call near future science fiction. Um, but I think it's important to notice as a, a sort of a landmark. Now, there are a couple of other books published in this period that lots of people have read that have nuclear wars in them, but that almost nobody remembers have nuclear wars in them. Orwell's 1984 is set in the aftermath of a nuclear war in which these gigantic uh, states are set up to compete with each other and the horrific dictatorship evolves. But the background of it is a nuclear war, and Orwell uh, is sort of turning the tables on Wells, who builds his utopia in the wake of a nuclear war. The other one is Bradbury's Martian Chronicles. Now, the Martian Chronicles is a collection of short stories, really, which were published separately in various magazines, including uh, some popular magazines as well as science fiction magazines. And uh, has always been a popular book. It was one of the first books that broke out if you were in the 1950s and got beyond um, Buck Rogers, uh, you were likely to encounter the Martian Chronicles. But toward the end of the Martian Chronicles, the human race, having um, destroyed uh, the indigenous Martians and having uh, committed all sorts of other atrocities, uh, destroys itself in a huge nuclear war with the exception of two families who uh, emigrate to Mars and sort of refound the human race. There's two stories at the end of the Martian Chronicles about this. And they're very dark stories. Bradbury had this sensuous style that was very seductive and um, wonderful to read, but he also had a fascination with horror. And many of his early stories are horror stories. And the Martian Chronicles is a mixture of these. But uh, very few people remember that the Martian Chronicles has this nuclear war ending that practically obliterates the human race. And of course, Fahrenheit 451, which I've discussed elsewhere at length, um, ends with nuclear war as well. So um, what I say about... Uh, the Martian Chronicles in my book, I'll just quote a little bit of it here. It's the story of humanity being punished for its genocidal deeds by committing genocide on itself, having killed off most of the Indians, having driven desperate blacks to flee the lynch law south for Mars, and having contemptuously, almost without noticing, annihilated the wise, gentle Martians. Humanity destroys itself in an atomic holocaust, which is one last act of typical unexplained stupidity. It is not necessary to explain why nuclear war consumes the earth. It is the logical consequence of the parochialism, bigotry, and greed which are displayed in the earlier chapters. This sort of sets the tone for a lot of nuclear war fiction in which there is no examination of the tactics, the strategy, the politics. It's just taken as more or less inevitable, and it's 
often seen as uh, the, the war happens and nobody knows why it happened. You know, it's one thing to launch a war under the belief that your nation must be preserved or that the evil enemy must be crushed or whatever. It's another thing to have the world destroyed and not know quite why it happened. And that is what really haunted the imagination of quite a few writers. Um, and so we get many, many novels in which nuclear war is triggered by accident. And this is also the era of Twilight Zone, which is practically a Ray Bradbury television series. Yes. I mean, one way of looking at it. Yes. Some of it is based on Bradbury. Yeah, yeah there are several episodes based on Bradbury. But um, this style of not explaining the... Um, actual nuts and bolts of how this all happened or what led to this, but just allowing you to look at the result of what would happen, which presumably then would initiate thoughts in people's minds that would uh, steer them away from anything that would lead them into this kind of disaster. And of course, the late 40s and the 50s were the beginnings of what called the Cold War. And I think people may forget, so younger people may not know, that this is counterposed to hot war. It's not just that relations were chilly between the Soviet Union and the U.S., um, but it, there was still a kind of war going on, but without actual fighting. And that was made possible by deterrence. Both sides accepted the idea that nuclear weapons were good mainly for terrifying the other side into not using its nuclear weapons. So you had this tremendous arms race built up. And on a couple of occasions, uh, Americans, including notoriously John F. Kennedy, uh, declared that the Russians were ahead of us and that we needed to catch up, which was not, in fact, the case. We were always ahead of the Russians. But there was this anxiety to keep that balance, to make sure that we had something of an upper hand, but there was also the awareness that upper hand didn't really mean much. If deterrence failed, then your country was still going to be destroyed. And so there was very little satisfaction to be had from that kind of a victory. So as long as the war could be kept at arm's length through the Cold War strategy of deterrence, it was something that people really preferred not to think about at all. And the 50s have been called the great celebration, you know, the return from war, uh, growing prosperity, the baby boom, all of these things. Uh, and in the background was this shadow that people pretty resolutely tried to ignore and writers like Bradbury and others are kind of trying to bring their attention back toward that. Conservative writers generally didn't talk about the theme because it didn't suit their purposes. There is an interesting exception, however. In uh, 1951, Collier's Magazine, which was one of the most popular, probably after Life Magazine was the most popular picture magazine in general circulation, a weekly, lavishly circulated, uh, not as classy looking as Life, but um, very, very widely read by millions of Americans. And they put together a special issue for October 27th, 1951, preview of the war we do not want in which they turned it all over to imagining a nuclear war between the United States and Russia. The Russians attack 
Washington, D.C. with a nuclear bomb and we in turn obliterate Moscow, destroy the government, liberate all the Russians from their communist oppressors and establish peace on earth and democracy in, in Russia. And the editors recruited a number of distinguished writers, including Edward R. Murrow, who was abashed at having taken part in it later, and uh, Philip Wiley, who wrote a lot about this subject, and a lot of other um, people, and then big full-page illustrations of uh, Washington, D.C. on fire, and uh, the Russians being bombed, and so on. It was, it was really an astonishing document. I actually found a copy, which I have still in my possession. And when I was invited to speak at a conference in 1987 of the Seventh World Congress of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War in Moscow, in the Soviet Union, um, I took the magazine along and displayed it and talked about it and was discussing the whole how Americans and Russians tended to think about nuclear war and how dangerous this kind of thinking was. I think the Russians were pretty appalled. There was a, a documentary made at the time of the conference, and it was broadcast all over Soviet Union a couple of years later, showing me holding up this magazine and waving it around, but the narrator didn't say anything about it whatsoever. It didn't identify me. It didn't identify what the magazine was or what the subject was. It was all about, you know, we had this conference about trying to deal with nuclear weapons. Hmm. Interesting experience. So, uh, uh, British writers in the 50s were more likely to be concerned about nuclear weapons. They didn't have this big arsenal that we had. They were closer, obviously, to Russia. And back in 1948, just three years after the war, Roald Dahl, best known for his many children's books, many of which have been made into movies, wrote one called Sometime, Never. This is the author of Charlie and Chocolate Factory and Matilda and all these. Yes. James and the Giant Peach. Yes. Many, many. Yeah. And um, it's sometime never. It's not a great book, but it is one of these dire warning, what uh, traditionally is called an admonitory novel. Um, in science fiction, they've traditionally been called awful warning novels. And there are a number of those, but they never achieved a really wide audience. There was a persistent tendency to continue to ignore the problem until 1954. And it wasn't international tensions that led to it, but a bomb test. 1954, uh, the Bravo H-bomb test near the Marshall Islands sent a wave of contaminated fallout that hit a fishing boat um, called the Lucky Dragon. <laughs> in English, and contaminated Japanese fishermen, some of whom died. And that suddenly captured the imagination of the public. Now, scientists and people who were in on this knew about this all along, but it struck home the idea that Japanese, who are now actually under our protection and were allies, um, were being killed by radiation and in Japan it had an enormous influence because there had been kind of a taboo after the Americans uh, invaded Japan after the bomb and sort of took over, wrote their constitution for them and so on. And not only the Americans but the Japanese did not really want to talk about nuclear weapons. It was just sort of a big embarrassment. After this event, all of a sudden everybody was talking about it. 
And people were thinking, okay, so it's not only being so close that you get blown up. That is the danger here. The wind happens to blow some radiation your direction. Uh, you could also be in danger. And that leads to the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, the CND in Britain, 1955. Um, very popular organization, lots of young people, many women involved. Uh, then the uh, danger to genetic defects and so on uh, was much discussed. And at this time, there's also people beginning to discuss the possibility of super weapons and things like doomsday bombs, a perfect deterrent, having a bomb that says, if I blow this up, it will kill everybody on Earth. So don't you dare attack me. This goes off, uh, which is an absolute crazy idea, of course, but it's striking enough to terrify people. So there's an upsurge in fiction uh, around that time, middle of the 50s, and one of the distinguished books that comes out of it is Walter M. Miller's A Canticle for Leibovitz. There are some writers who just get struck with an idea and come out with one really good novel, uh, never quite able to duplicate. He wrote a sequel later, which is not nearly as good, but it's about a post-apocalyptic age in the distant future uh, compared to the fall of Rome, and really it's like the new dark age in which some monks have preserved bits of manuscripts about the past and um, they're quite unknowing are preserving the knowledge of the nuclear world of the past. And it's about the reemergence of that knowledge. But it's told in a beautiful way, a terrifically written, um, a simple monk who is extremely naive and who uh, ornaments a, a circuitry diagram with illuminations like a biblical manuscript. And um, they're vivid characters. It's just gorgeously written. Miller was a science fiction writer. He had written other things before this. But this was his one major book. And for people who talk about nuclear war and science fiction, this is the book that is usually pointed to as the masterpiece. Um, Miller was a deeply troubled guy and eventually committed suicide. And... Uh, interest in his book has waxed and waned over the years. There's been talk of making it to a movie, and I don't think it was. Before we move on from the British Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, just one bit of trivia is that they developed the peace sign. Right. And uh, a lot of people don't know that the peace sign is actually an initialism. N-D. Right. Nuclear disarmament. It's a superimposed semaphore signal for the letters N and D. So they inspired that, too. Right. And as I pointed out in a previous broadcast, it's often confused by people with the Mercedes-Benz symbol. The nuclear sign has the straight line down, and the Mercedes-Benz is just three slices of pie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and of course, it became known as the peace symbol, and sort of people lost track of the fact that it was about nuclear disarmament in particular. Yeah, yeah. So in 1956, a year later, the Russians launched Sputnik. And we often encounter this event now in terms of the exploration of space and talking about how exciting it is and how it stimulated Americans to catch up and all that. What really stimulated Americans was the thought, hmm, if they can launch a rocket that can put a Sputnik in space, they can launch a rocket that can launch a bomb on New York or San Francisco. And so it was really the space race was about missiles, not so much space exploration. 
that was where it never would have gotten as much political support as it did if it hadn't been the worry about the Russians being ahead of us in uh, being able to bomb the U.S. And for a brief period, they were in terms of their missile technology. This was also the year 56 of the novel On the Beach by Neville Shute. And this is the only nuclear war novel most people ever read. Um, it was thought to be horrifying. It's one of those things where, unlike other kinds of horror novels, well, people get hooked on them. Usually with nuclear war novels, people read one and they think, okay, that's it. That's all I need to read. <laughs> I'm not going to look at any more. But the interesting thing to me about it is it's set in Australia. The war is taking place in the Northern Hemisphere, and it's about the slow descent of radiation uh, involving actually super weapons that are uh, doomsday machines that are going to destroy all life on Earth. So it wildly exaggerates the lethality of the fallout, but pretty much ignores the gore. You don't get people suffering from separating wounds and you know skin peeling off and so on as you did with Hiroshima and that's uh, something that tends to occur again and again it was made into a film in 1959 which is a little bit better than the novel but it really winds up being a metaphor for mortality rather than a useful warning there's a tendency for people to think of nuclear war as just kind of a, a symbol of death and to think of it as universal and inevitable. So that the most common thing that people say when you say, well, what would you do if there were a nuclear war? The most common thing for people to say is, I'd hope I would be right in the middle of it, just be evaporated, be all over. Um, the problem with that, of course, is it makes it a problem that cannot be dealt with. It's like you saying, well, how are you going to deal with death? What are you going to do in the afterlife? Well, if you don't believe in one, um, there's not much to do. And that thinking leaks over into thinking about nuclear weapons. So there's a tendency to absolutize it, to say that if one bomb is launched, that's the end. It's apocalypse. And we talk about post-apocalyptic fiction, often nuclear. And uh, so there's a tendency to greatly exaggerate the power of nuclear weapons, and also to uh, emphasize the uh, futility of doing anything about it in that day. What was scary about On the Beach is not that it really described what a nuclear war was like, but that it was so final. And you see this couple deciding uh, that their little baby in its cradle has to be killed uh, so it won't have to suffer radiation because they want to commit suicide and they don't want the baby to suffer by itself. Yeah. And well, that kind of thing is pretty moving, pretty powerful, um, but it isn't it isn't useful in terms of helping you deal with the real world. Well, what do we do about preventing a nuclear war? How how does that go about? Uh, either if you think that one could be survived and there might be better ways to do that, or if you think that certain policies might be worked for that would minimize uh, the use of nuclear weapons, fiction just doesn't usually deal with those subjects. Well, the concern about radiation from fallout really grew and grew, and especially in this country, um, women leading a lot of the way and eventually led to a treaty to ban nuclear testing in the atmosphere. But before that, there are a few uh, books I'd like to mention. One is uh, 1958. There's a whole bunch of mainstream non-science fiction novels that 
come out about nuclear war. And the best of them all is Helen Clarkson's The Last Day. Now, she was a mystery writer, and she got concerned, like a lot of women, uh, about the dangers of radiation to children in particular. And she wrote this very moving account of what it's like to be in the house. It's like Judas Merrill's Shadow on the Hearth, except it's more effective and more beautifully written. Unfortunately, it did not sell widely at all. It's extremely rare. Uh, you can buy a used copy on Amazon for $100. And I couldn't find one in a library anyplace. Someone had mentioned it in passing in an article, and I thought, geez, I need to read this. So I've tracked her down, and she was a very old lady now, retired from writing, and uh, said, do you know where I can get a copy of your novel? And she says, well, I only have one, my own copy, but I'll lend it to you, mm. which I thought was amazing. So she did. I was very impressed. I wrote about it in several different places, including my book. And then uh, I wanted to return it to her, and she didn't reply to my letters. I eventually found that she had died. Then I tried to track down any living relatives. I found that there was a sister. Um, and so I wrote to her, and uh, she vanished, I think, died as well. So I just said, okay, the thing to do is to put this in the library. I was building a library collection of nuclear war novels at Washington State University and said, you know, I'll put it into the library. So when I retired, I was cleaning out my personal library in my office, and I looked for the book. I could not find it. It had vanished. And I kept thinking, it's fallen down behind something. It's got to be somewhere in here. I went over and over and over the collection, and it, it just disappeared. So there are a few copies out there. If you're connected with the right library, you can read them. But uh, it's symptomatic of the bad thinking about nuclear weapons, I think. that One of the most effective books ever written about it just is almost vanished. However, there was another that was sold quite well, and that was Pat Frank's 1959, Alas, Babylon. That's one that if people told me they'd read On the Beach, so the next most likely for them to mention would be Alas, Babylon. And uh, they always think of it as a very scary novel. It was really terrible. And the interesting thing about that is it takes place on the periphery of the nuclear war. The war is off in the city, and some radiation leaks in, and one of the characters dies, but most of them get better, and they the action's off over the horizon, and most of the characters survive quite well. I thought, this is nothing compared to Clarkson or to many other books about it, and yet people found it absolutely terrifying. And that's part of this psychology of nuclear war. It's, it's just like saying, boo, you just nearly need to mention it, and people are scared, and then they want to stop thinking about it as quickly as possible. It's not something people want to explore. And I discovered that over and over as I tried to spread to the public my research. Because when I went out to speak and I would say, okay, the subject is nuclear war, um, people would decide that was the day to stay home and sort their socks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Very difficult to get an audience for it. Uh, what I did eventually was to try to make something more popular by collecting images in popular culture of nuclear war, uh, comic books and, and covers of paperbacks and games and 
uh, just all kinds of stuff. And uh, I put that all together as a slideshow and did a tour. I even toured uh, a couple of cities in Germany for the State Department, giving a slideshow and um, gave it several places. But it was always difficult to turn out an audience for it, although I think it's pretty fascinating. I put a web version of that up, which we'll create a link to, too. So you'd think that the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 would prompt a big reaction, but it didn't. It had this same uh, phenomenon of making people terrified for a short period and then very eager to put the whole idea behind them, to forget about it. And once again, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the weapons are halfway across the Atlantic on their way to Cuba, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Khrushchev, Soviet Union leader at the time, and Kennedy had a big face-off, and uh, the story is Kennedy stared him down, right? Well, I have to give a lot of credit to Khrushchev. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Khrushchev had a good argument. He said, you have missiles in Turkey just right over our border, and it didn't come out until many, many years later that what Kennedy secretly did was negotiate a deal by saying, we will withdraw our missiles from Turkey if you'll not take the ones away from Cuba. And... um that didn't come out until something like 30 years later, maybe more. So it wasn't just that he was tougher than Khrushchev. It was a good deal for Khrushchev. It really accomplished something that Khrushchev wanted. Khrushchev acted kind of crazy sometimes, but he was not a maniac. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the nuclear test ban treaty follows not long after that, 1963. They're feeling, phew, we didn't kill each other, and now we've actually got a treaty between the two countries. We've agreed not to explode nuclear bombs in the air. We continued to test them underground. But because the primary concern had been fallout, the arms race raced on without a lot of attention being paid to it. Now, during this period in the 60s, uh, science fiction writers continued to write more or less nihilistic post-nuclear science fiction. But outside of science fiction, the later 60s became dominated by other issues, the whole hippie phenomenon, the youth revolt, uh, the civil rights movement, Vietnam above all things. And so the anti-war movement, as I discussed in an earlier podcast, really focused very much on Vietnam, very little on things like the anti-ballistic missile program proposals and uh, the arms race and, and concerns of nuclear arms. That was something that I continued to be concerned about, but I felt very much isolated in the peace movement in that regard. Now, in the 1970s, there's an interesting movement. Uh, 1970s, of course, the era in which the women's movement really took off, uh, what's often called the second wave women's movement, after the one that uh, eventuated in getting votes for women much earlier. And there are several female writers that wrote a very effective novels dealing with nuclear issues. Susie McKee Charnas and Vonda McIntyre being well-known ones, and James Tiptree Jr. Uh, James Tiptree Jr. was actually named Alice Sheldon, and she kept her female identity concealed for a long, long time. And uh, they were outstanding writers who dealt with this issue, but again, read mainly in the science fiction community. Science fiction had not broken out of its cultish um, associations at that time, and rarely had a really broad audience. So the late 1970s are a low point in the writing of nuclear war fiction. But in 1980, Russell Hoban, who had written many children's books, wrote a masterpiece, Ridley Walker, 
which is set thousands of years after civilization has fallen in nuclear war. And again, it's a, uh, a new dark age and the language has evolved so that the language it's written in is almost as different from contemporary English as Chaucer's writing is from contemporary English. It makes it difficult to read, but it's very ingenious and, um, wonderful and it's powerful and again like a canticle for Leibovitz it's, it's about the rediscovery of nuclear power although here people think that they're reinventing the splitting of the atom what they're actually doing is reinventing gunpowder well I want to get into the 1980s I think we're transitioning now to a pretty critical time the whole Reagan era discussion but I'd like to leave that for next time if we can Okay. And uh, pick this conversation up some more going through your history of study of this topic. So, once again, I'll say thanks, Paul, and we'll talk next time. Okay. Talk to you later. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.